you. We missed last week. We were up in the Northwest at a family reunion on my wife's side, and it was a tremendous time and so forth, but great to be back with you yet again. You know, when uh, you talk about animated movies that Disney has produced, one of the more profound ones uh, was Beauty and the Beast, and uh, many of you know the story quite well. Uh, there was a time when the Beast was a handsome prince, and uh, the castle was a pleasant place to be. And then the curse appeared, and the castle was shrouded in darkness, and the handsome prince was transformed into a surly beast. Now, the beauty, on the other hand, was stunningly gorgeous uh, and uh, very contagious and kind. And when the beauty loved the beast, the beast became beautiful. Now, the fair, the, the the story itself has a parallel in the life of uh, Abigail and David. And I think we're going to find out that the anger and the ugliness that David manifests in this particular story was uh, just melted by the beauty and the grace of Abigail. And uh, the story begins, really, uh, even before the story begins, you look at what was going on in David's life at this particular time. And David sort of had the world by the table, and uh, we, we've talked about him a little bit. He was a, a true Renaissance man, had extraordinary gifts on multiple fronts, but, uh, you know, he was anointed. Saul, the, the present king, employed him, actually, when he was a little guy, to just play music in the palace court because it had a way of uh, chasing away the depression uh, of, uh, of Saul himself. So David was like a musical Prozac to the present. Uh, Samuel also anointed him as the future king. He was the one that was going to follow King Saul. Uh, previous to that, he actually slew Goliath. And so the, the armies loved him. Uh, the people wrote songs about David. And everything he touched turned to gold. And he was really on the fast track to ascend to the throne. But... A funny thing happened along the journey, and one by one, the valuable supports in David's life uh, were stripped away. And I've mentioned them in your outline there. The first thing that David lost was his job. He went from shepherd boy to court musician to valiant warrior, but the king grew insanely jealous. Saul was jealous of David and attempted to kill him. Now, David escaped, but his budding career came to an abrupt conclusion, and he was now a fugitive, kind of the Richard Kimball of his day there. Uh, second, David lost his family. You see, Saul had given his daughter to David in marriage uh, beforehand, but then when uh, he fell out of favor to Saul, then Saul took his daughter back. And I mentioned earlier, that really wasn't much of a loss for David because she was pretty much of a loser anyway. <laughs> Third, David lost his best friend. Uh, you know, when things got white hot between David and Saul, uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, who was David's best friend, even though they were a generation apart, they permanently separated. And that must have been difficult on David himself. Fourth thing that David lost was his spiritual mentor. 
Now Samuel was the one who anointed uh, David. He's the one that, uh, you know, appointed him as the next king over the nation of Israel. This certainly was a call of God. But uh, he died, and uh, when he died, David went into a bit of a spiral because he lost uh, his mentor. And then the fifth thing that happened is that David lied to Ahimelech, the high priest, and when he did that, he lost his functional trust in God. Now, that led to the senseless slaughter of, every, of 85 other priests, and David had just really come apart at the seams, so things were going bad. Now, the extreme in David's story are really a reflection of life itself. Uh, life is obviously reflected in the literature of the world, you know, and uh, when I was in high school, as well as in college, I, I had to read a lot of Shakespeare stuff. Uh, we went through all of the, the difficult ones, you know, from each grade we did a Shakespeare story and we looked at uh, both tragedies as well as uh, comedies. You know, Much Ado About Nothing is a comedy of Shakespeare and it's a wonderful play. And in the end, everybody gets to uh, marry who they wanted to marry and the guy that they thought was dead came back alive again. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Hamlet would be, for instance, and Romeo and Juliet would be, a, a, you know, a tragedy. And these were people where, in Hamlet especially, where everybody died, uh, disappointed in the last scene. Now, when we read uh, Much Ado About Nothing, it adds levity to life. But when we stand in the presence uh, of a Hamlet, we have a more profound understanding of what life is really like and what the world is really like. Now in verse 1, we're informed of the death of Samuel. You just follow along. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him, and they buried him at the house of Ramah. Now this uh, was certainly traumatic in the life of David. Now Samuel had anointed David as the future king. And David hung on to that promise even when he was a fugitive running from the present king that he would eventually replace. Now when a mentor is removed, and many of you have had good mentors through the time that you've lived, when it's removed, it creates a measure uh, of confusion and instability oftentimes, and it certainly did in King David. And David arose and he went into the wilderness of Paran, and he just wanted to get away from it all and just think about life as it's been unfolding for him. Now, as our story does unfold, verse 2 introduces us to another guy, and his name is Nabal of Maon. And his, he had business in Carmel. Now, he had 3,000 3, sheep and 1,000 goats. Now, by today's standards, he would be a mega-millionaire. Uh, his wife was Abigail, and we're told that she was intelligent and beautiful, just like all of the ladies that are in this room. Do I hear an amen, men? All right. Okay. But Nabal was harsh and evil, unlike all the men in this room. Ladies, do I hear an amen out of you? Okay. All right. So it was shearing season, 
and uh, therefore a very critical time for Nabal. It would be analogous to harvest season for that of a farmer. And David had 600 men who had gathered with him at the cave of Adullam. And they were a bit of a motley crew, including some who had escaped from debtor, debtor's prison. But under David's direction, they became a band of noble warriors. And what they did is they roamed in the wilderness and they protected flocks. They protected Nabal's flocks and his herds from predatory bandits that would come and steal them. So he, he had all of this, this big army of people carefully guarding them. Uh, and uh, it was an unwritten law at the time of shearing season that uh, the, pre the individual that would own the flocks would grant a, a gratuity, a generous gratuity to those that had protected their shepherds and protected their flocks. And so what David did is he sent 10 men to Nabal in order to collect on that particular uh, debt. And Nabal's response to the men was far less than thankful and gracious. In fact, when he was confronted, he says, who in the world is David? And who's the son of Jesse? Now certainly, as wealthy and as connected as Nabal was, he certainly knew about David, the son of Jesse, who was the slayer of Goliath. He understood that. But he not only refuses to offer them any kind of provision for what they had done for a number of weeks and months, but he adds insult to injury by mocking them. And so the ten men return empty-handed uh, to their leader, and that would be David. Now understand, David had already lit up the barbecue. Uh, the, the peppers and the onions and the tomatoes were already on the skewers. All he really needed and was looking for was the mutton. Uh, and they came back and said, well, Nabal didn't give us anything. And so David, uh, being the godly man that he was, he says, listen, men, I was honestly hoping that we could provide provision at the generous hand of Nabal, but if he's not going to give it, then we're just going to have to look to the Lord and uh, tighten our belts a little bit and continue on uh, without it. Now, that really wasn't David's response. David actually was furious, and he had 400 men strap on their swords. And by the way, the purpose of a sword is not to facilitate dialogue, but he had them strap on their swords and, uh, and take off toward Nabal. So a minute earlier, you know, he had his mind on on mutton, now he has his mind on murder. He's going to take this guy out. And so we read here, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us. This is people telling Nabal, his, you know, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. And there was a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, 
For evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And then they add, as they're talking to Abigail, and he is such a worthless man that nobody can speak to him. So David is coming, Nabal is toast, and Abigail kneels. Now she understands that her husband and what he has done has been absolutely unconscionable. He's behaved in a very bad way. And so she gathers supplies for a massive feast. I mean, she packs a number of donkeys, and then she takes off. And you look at the story here, and you say, my goodness, what an incredible drama. Here's David storming toward Nabal with revenge on his mind. And here's Abigail trying to intercept him before he gets there. David is waving a sword. She's clinging to a crock pot. All of these things are coming in here, and they meet. Abigail meets with him, and uh, David says, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, and he has returned me evil for good. I'm putting down every male servant he has. And then David, you know, David is consumed with absolute rage. He's going way overboard, but he, he says, it's a good lesson for us. You know, uh, that's why, in, in one sense, it, it's just a reminder, when we, ever, when we take our own personal vengeance, invariably we're not out to get even. Uh, we're out to get one up. And uh, when a man's head is clouded by anger and motivated by vengeance, he's unable to execute equitable justice. So Abigail is the significant personality in this episode here. And the beauty of her person is very instructive and very inspiring. And it plays out in a couple of arenas. Uh, First of all, it plays out in her graciousness. And that she was. Proverbs 22, verse 11. When a woman has a pure heart and gracious speech, the king is her friend. Now, graciousness is more than just good manners or common courtesy. It's really the etiquette of the soul. And we know that it comes through us and not necessarily from us. Let me read a little bit, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 25. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, folly is his game with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. And now let the gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given 
to the young men who accompanied my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you all your days. What a marvelous thing that she says to King David. She knew who King David was, and she calls herself a maidservant five times. She calls him my Lord nine times during that paragraph. And she asked that the blame of her foolish husband land on her. That's the kind of woman that she was. And her, her beauty simply plays out in the gracious quality of her own talking. Now the second thing that, uh, that comes out of this, that plays out, is that Abigail's beauty is seen in her truthfulness. She looks at David and she says, David, I happen to be looking at the next king over Israel right now. Don't mar your record with this ruthless act. Uh, yes, you've been wronged, but defer the scales of justice to God is what she's advising him to do. And then she says, I want you to take everything that I provided Turn around before you do something that you're going to regret. Don't behave like Nabal. One fool is enough in this story. And then she appeals to his character and his knowledge of what is right. And David melts. You see, a moment later, David was just full of himself and empty of God, and it was ugly. And what Abigail did is she recovered the presence of God for David. And this is what we do. This is what we do in a church. This is what we do in a marriage. This is what we do in a friendship. And Abigail recovers that presence of God for David, and she restores the beauty of God to David. And David said this to her. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to keep me from bloodshed. And David received what she had brought, and then he said, go in peace. I've listened to you and granted your request. You see, David comes to his senses. He sees the providential hand of God in sending Abigail. And then he's arrested from his foolish venture. Now let's read again verse 36. Then Abigail came to Nabal. And behold, he was holding a feast in his house like a feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So, he did not tell, so she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But it came about in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal that his wife told him these things. And his heart died within him so that he became as stone. You see, the news that Abigail was bringing just brought on a stroke to Nabal. Maybe it was the shock of being absolutely close to losing his life at the hand of David. Maybe it was the shock of that. But maybe he remembered that King Saul had slaughtered Ahimelech and 85 other priests for giving David bread when, when, when uh, Saul was trying to chase him. Uh, and, you know... He didn't know, but all he, know, all he knows is that it was so traumatic that he died right there on the spot. Uh, 
somebody's prayers were answered. You know, and uh, he, yeah, it was 10 days later. Now, when David heard the news of Nabal's demise, uh, he sent servants to Abigail with a proposal to become David's wife. And Abigail, Abigail arose, she saddled up a donkey, she rode off and became his wife. She couldn't get to him fast enough. Now, there's a couple of lessons that come out of this story. Uh, two of them I want to put before you. First, what we see is the ugliness of anger, and we all know about that by personal experience. At times, we've had to sit our spouse down, or sit our friend down, or sit our children down, and just apologize for the anger that we exhibited, uh, you know, and it's uh, the kind of thing that uh, breaks down, uh, you know, the fellowship within a family, within a church, and so we keep short accounts of this. You know, righteous anger is a good thing. You know, anger can be a wonderful gift. And a righteous anger gives us energy and passion and backbone. Unrighteous anger, on the other hand, where we just fly off the stick, just either shrinks into resentment or takes control of us by stealth. Or in this case, it just erupts in rage and overreacts. You know, the late Lewis Smeads, and Lewis Smeads was a professor at Fuller Seminary for a long time, and he has a great line. He says, anger is to our personal lives what military is to national life. He says, given the state of the world, a nation needs the military, but let the military take over and a nation will lose control of itself. And so it is with anger. A person without anger is a pushover, but anger on its own is like a wild river. And David's anger was eating his lunch and he was bitter. You know, someone defined bitterness as drinking poison and then hoping your enemy dies. And that's what it does. Those who harbor bitterness end up destroying their system with all kinds of toxins. And while everybody around you is, losing, is loving their life. Uh, but God, you say, well, doesn't God get angry? And yes, our God gets incredibly angry angry. Uh, Romans 8, or Romans 1.18 says, the anger of the Lord is revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness and unrighteousness are always there. They're always present in a fallen world, and therefore God's anger is always going to be present. But the anger of God is not like our sinful kind of anger. Our anger exposes our sinfulness, usually. God's anger exposes his goodness, always. You know, when I get angry, I can literally embarrass myself because of the curtain just being blown off my own image, that kind of thing. You know, my self-absorption at times, my image consciousness at times is just uh, there for everybody to see and I'm exposed and I'm flawed and I understand that I can be narcissistic and all kinds of other bad things 
But when we get anger without a cause, we just kind of lose control of ourselves. But the anger of God, on the other hand, is institutional. It's his settled opposition toward evil. He came to deal with evil and ultimately eradicate it. Now, if God is good and he doesn't react against that which is evil, then we need to question our understanding and rethink our understanding of what goodness really is. And the greatest demonstration of God's anger was at the cross where the Father poured out his wrath on his only son. You know, he smote our sin, but interestingly, he bore no ill will against us, and that's because the, the son took our sin from us. In fact, he provided the means for our forgiveness and our reconciliation with God. You see, God does everything he can possibly do to get you and me off the hook. He sent his son to die for us. He sent his spirit to assure us of his love. He sends people in our lives to uh, embrace you and to soften the hard edges of your life and of my life. And it was God's anger against sin that really created the means of our own salvation. Even before you trusted him as Savior and Lord, he wanted nothing but your good. That's the way our God happens to be. And so we see the ugliness of anger. And the second lesson that comes out of this is the power of beauty. Now, I uh, like Abigail a lot, and she has all of the qualities that stand out in a mature woman. She's insightful. She's tender, she's poetic, she's classy, she's poised. You know, you run out of superlatives in some cases when you encounter a woman like this. In one initial encounter that probably didn't last over 10 minutes, she melted the heart of the king-elect and led him to do good rather than evil. Beauty does that in a culture. It curbs evil and it always champions good. You know, when I think of you ladies uh, and the work that you do and the leadership you take and the position that you hold, perhaps the greatest contribution you make to the body of Christ and to this church is the uh, Christ-like beauty of your own soul. You can't make a better contribution to the people of God and to God himself than that. You know, it balances out this utilitarian and materialistic world in which we live. It's uh, the enticing and uh, the mysterious part of your charm that God has given you. So don't take it for granted. Uh, the world is... The world desperately needs uh, this kind of graciousness on the part of ladies. Now, when you call something beautiful, which um, you are, what you're really saying is that it's, it's not a means to an end. It's, uh, it's not a means to anything else. It, it, it is the thing, and it stands out on its own. And in Abigail, we, we see the redemptive beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the fable, going back to the, 
There's a little story about uh, the beauty and the beast. The, the beauty simply kisses the beast in the fable. But in the Bible, the beauty does a whole lot more than that. Christ actually becomes the beast so that those who are beastly can become beautiful. The sinless one took the face of a sinner so that sinners could take on the face of a saint. That's not a bad trade, ever. You know, for what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Father, we uh, thank you uh, for uh, what you reveal to us in Scripture and uh, nail down in our hearts. We thank you that... Uh, you never give up on us. You continually bring us into the circle of your affection and forgiveness. And uh, Lord, you give us the charge to continue to walk in the spirit. And in the midst of all of the mistakes that we make and all the selfishness at times that we exhibit and uh, sometimes the lack of concern that we have as well, Lord, you have uh, your own way of using your spirit to gently bring us back around uh, to that point where we become uh, that enticing individual in our friendship with others, uh, in our marriage, and in uh, the full body of Christ itself. It's the, it's the basis of our unity. It's the basis of the fact that uh, uh, we can once again be reminded of the fact that uh, nothing good is going to well up in us that doesn't come from your spirit. And so we would ask that uh, you gently continue what you've been doing for a number of years. You don't annihilate our soul and bring us down to the ground and make us feel destitute and unloved. Father, you keep lifting us up and looking us in the eye. And it's not a look of scorn, it's a look of love. And sometimes there's a smile that goes with us because somehow in your power, we're able to do something that uh, benefits the kingdom and shows love to other people. We pray, Father, that uh, we would be the kind of men and women and young people that uh, would slowly but surely grow in thinking about others even more than ourselves and looking out for others. And uh, we pray for those who are shy, for those who, are, who are, are shy to the point of having a hard time expressing themselves. Father, may we be patient as your people. We pray this all in the name of Christ.